open your Bibles or your app to Colossians 2, 16 through 23. We'll be studying this morning. Uh, two things I want to mention to you as you're turning there. One is, if your children, if you have children in our uh, Sunday school and children's church classes, uh, we have a new resource for you that you can uh, purchase at the Welcome Center. Uh, the curriculum we use in our Sunday school is called Generations of Grace, and they have put together a great family devotional that's based on the Sunday morning lessons. And so the lesson that your child's hearing this morning, there are five days of devotionals, um, and it really spells it out for us um, on how to do those devotionals, questions to ask, uh, portions of the scripture to reread that your child would have read uh, this morning along with their, their teachers. I uh, just can't recommend this enough. Just a great resource for you. There's a bunch of them at the Welcome Center. I don't get any kickback for uh, promoting that, but um, I thought, boy, that's just too good to, to pass up, too good to not uh, mention to you if you didn't know about that. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I think this is my first Sunday standing before the congregation uh, since uh, our sabbatical time. Um, our, our church is, is uh, very gracious in allowing its staff every seven years to take uh, a seven-week sabbatical. And um, I just wanted to express our, our gratefulness for that time. It was just a very rich time. We came back uh, here in, in mid-August or so. Uh, a year in advance, uh, I had to uh, give a some goals or, or kind of what, how I would use that time to our elders for them to look at and to approve. And some of those things were to, to refocus my relationship with God and my relationship with my wife and, and family, um, just to find rest, too, um, from seven years of ministry, and then also just a time of learning. And so we, uh, we traveled as a family. We spent uh, time reading together and individually. I, I interviewed pastors at other churches to glean from their wisdom and and now that I'm back, I'm kind of considering, okay, what's the best way for Bethany Community Church to utilize me and my, my role at the church? And so we hope that the church sees a, a benefit or a return in your investment in us and allowing us to, uh, to go. Um, and we're just really grateful. Uh, I can't thank you enough uh, for the time, just from the bottom of our hearts. It was just a very, it's a very sweet time. And so we're very grateful for a church that would allow that. Um, let's get to the matter at hand here, the, the letter you've opened to was, was written by the Apostle Paul, and uh, the Colossian church is who he's writing to, is founded by a man named Epaphras, who had come to Christ uh, hearing Paul uh, in Ephesus on Paul's third missionary journey, and then Epaphras went home to Colossae and, and began to proclaim the gospel, and, and people responded in repentance and faith, and, and a church was formed, and elders were placed, and, and a church was birthed there. So why did Paul write this letter to the church? Well, Epaphras was in Rome visiting with, with Paul, maybe getting some ministry training from him, and was giving him an update on the Colossian church. Um, and it wasn't a sparkling update. The, the church was struggling. And so Paul sees the Colossian church as kind of his spiritual grandchildren, Epaphras being his spiritual son, writes this letter and says, here, take this with you as you go. And he sent some other letters with Epaphras as well. Um, and so that's, that's the letter that we have before us here. The church was dealing with some false teaching uh, from within. And uh, although we don't know the exact nature of the false teaching, we can look at this letter and kind of glean some things from it to see uh, what they were struggling with. Um, here, here's what, how one study Bible lists the theme of the book. So let me read the theme of the book. And then as we read uh, this passage, 1623, I want you to look for any elements of that theme in it. One commentator says, uh, Christ is Lord over all creation, is the theme of the book, including the invisible realm. 
He has secured redemption for his people, enabling them to participate with him in his death, resurrection, and fullness. Um, So it's our our custom to stand as we read the scripture. So if you wouldn't mind standing with me, I'll be uh, reading uh, Colossians 2, 16-23 from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Let me read this for us. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, for whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of this world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. You be seated. You pray for us as we enter into studying God's word. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word and we just ask for your help as we look at it. May you prick our hearts, convict us of sin, and remind us of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this was before my time, but some of you may remember a singer, Frankie Valley. Any nods there? So you might remember this song, You're Just Too Good to Be True. I Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. You'd be like heaven to touch. I want to hold you so much. At long last, love has arrived. And I thank God I'm alive. You're just too good to be true. I can't take my eyes off of you. By Frankie Valley. And coincidentally, my wife thought the same thing about me as she met me. There's lots of the things in this world that seem too good to be true, aren't there? Uh, you think of advertisements you see on TV. You know, lose 25 pounds in three weeks with very little exercise and hardly changing your diet, or stay at home and and work, and in five days you'll make $4,000, and you think, okay, there's got to be something I have to add to this. Okay, this can't really be true um, that I would make that much money. This can't really be true I would, you know, lose that much weight. There's something I have to add to this. My wife discovered that with me. Uh, There was a lot she needed to add to this uh, to make me marryable. Um, God bless her. but sadly, we kind of take this, this part, I guess, of our human nature that says, oh, that's too good to be true, and then we apply that to the spiritual realm. We look at the gospel, and we say, oh, that's, that's too good to be true. The idea of, of grace, undeserved, being poured out on me in my sin, I've got to bring something else to the table here. This is too good to be true. I, I've got to add something to this. We can be tempted to make our salvation kind of Jesus plus. Okay, I understand the gospel, but there's this other aspect I have to bring to make sure that I am saved. Or we look at our sanctification, how we grow in Christ. We think, all right, I'm growing in Christ, and it's by God's grace, but I have to add to that in order for it to be happening. Let me say this. I think this is the summary of our passage today. Nothing can add to the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation and sanctification. Nothing can add to the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation and our sanctification. This passage falls right after a passage that may be one of the greatest passages of all the scripture talking about the sufficiency of Christ. And then Paul enters into writing about these things. 
that the Colossian church was struggling with adding in. So Paul says to the Colossian church, stop looking. What, what are you looking for? Stop looking. It's not Jesus plus, it's Jesus only. Which brings us to our first point for today. The first message I think Paul is sending to the Colossian church through his disciple Epaphras is stop looking outward. Stop looking out- outward. Look back at verses 16 and 17. Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to festival or new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So there seems to be a, a combination of struggles that potentially the Colossian church was dealing with here. One was uh, Old Testament law. Uh, how do we handle this Old Testament law that I know it was, it was given for Israel? Uh, maybe I'm a Gentile now in, in the Colossian church, or I'm a, I'm a Jewish believer in the Colossian church. Don't we still need to do some of those things now from the Old Covenant given to Israel? For, shouldn't we do those today? There's potential, too, that there were some pagan rituals or laws brought from the Gentiles that were coming into the church. They were kind of intermingling with those Jewish laws, and we had a lot of these legalistic things that the church was being confronted with. Um, the problem was is that these things became a measure of their spirituality. They became what one had to do in order to be saved or, or in order to be sanctified. It was based on their adherence to rules, based on legalism. And Paul says to the church, stop looking outward. And he says, don't let someone act as a judge over you by saying you must adhere to these laws. No one could judge their standing before God on the basis of whether or not they observed the Mosaic law or any other law. Romans 10.4 says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 5.1, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Now, if a believer wants to participate in some of these Old Testament laws in particular, um, I think that's a matter of Christian liberty. Uh, I, I, I don't believe we, it's an aspect of that should be legalistically done or imposed upon others. Let, let's say, for example, a Colossian believer found great encouragement in continuing to, pra- to practice the, the Passover and, and found great encouragement how that points to Christ. Well, that's, that's wonderful that, for that believer, but he needs to be mindful that it doesn't confirm their salvation. It's not required for salvation. It's not required for their sanctification. And, and it, it's a matter of Christian liberty. And, and he needs to be mindful of maybe a, a younger Colossian believer who maybe still struggles with legalism to not enforce that upon the younger believer. You see, false teaching was telling the church that it was not enough. Christ was not enough. You had to do these things in order to be saved. They must follow the Jewish ceremonial law, or some other man-made laws. And he, Paul mentions a few things here. First, he mentions food and drink. This could be very well referring to Leviticus 11 and some of the dietary laws that were, were given to Israel. Uh, these laws, what was the purpose of them? They were given to distinguish Israel from other nations. They were to help Israel from blending into those other nations. But in Mark 7, Jesus declares all food clean in the New Covenant, Right? All food clean, saying there's nothing that can go into a man that defiles him. Uh, back to Romans 14, verse 17 states that the kingdom of God is not defined by what is eaten or drunk, but by righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit. So that's food and drink. Talks about festivals and new moon. 
right? These were some of the Jewish celebrations. I mentioned Passover, Pentecost, the Feast of Lights, the Feast of the Tabernacles. The new moon was a time when sacrifices were made. Paul is just simply saying these are not required for salvation and sanctification. He goes on to mention the Sabbath. Um, John MacArthur uh, makes uh, a convincing argument from the Scripture that today's believer does not need to observe the Sabbath as Israel did. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying don't take a day of rest, uh, don't celebrate on Sundays with your church body. Don't hear what I'm not saying. What, What MacArthur is arguing is that the believer does not have to celebrate the Sabbath as Israel celebrated the Sabbath. That makes sense? Here are some of the arguments he gives. Number one, uh, the Sabbath was a sign of Israel of the Old Covenant. Number two, the New Testament nowhere commands Christians to observe the Sabbath in the same way as Israel. Number three, Acts 27 gives us the only glimpse of the early church's worship service, and it was done on the first day of the week, on a Sunday. Number four, the Old Testament does not tell of God's expectations for Gentile nations to observe the Sabbath, uh, and they were not corrected for not doing so. Number five, Paul warns the Gentiles about many different sins in his letters, but he never warns them about breaking the Sabbath. Number six, Paul teaches in Romans 14.5 that keeping the Sabbath is a matter of Christian liberty, but not required for salvation and sanctification. He says that one person esteems a day, another treats them all alike. He should be convinced in his own mind. So it's up to you if you want to esteem a day, and make sh- uh, but make sure you don't think all have to. There is liberty here. MacArthur goes on to share other, other reasons, but I'll, I'll stop for now. So, so why does Paul address these, these issues here? Because the substance belongs to Christ. He's only a shadow of things to come. The substance belongs to Christ. You know, there's many lights up here, and so you know, these shadows that you see here only exist because there's something of substance, right? There's a reality that causes this music stand to have a shadow uh, on the ground. What Paul is saying is Christ is that substance. He is the bread of life for those food restrictions. He is the Passover himself, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, for those ceremonial things. He is the eternal Sabbath giver as he gives us eternal Sabbath rest. The shadow often goes before the reality, right? Sometimes you're walking along and see the shadow in front of you. I remember being a kid at, at a Dunlap grade school and and trying to somehow step on uh, my shadow. Uh, but it always got away from me there. Uh, sometimes in, in uh, TV shows, you'll see uh, the character coming, but first you see their shadow coming around the corner, or you, you hear their footsteps as they're coming around the corner. And eventually, uh, the character uh, reveals himself. See, the shadow is something, but it's nothing compared to the reality. Right? The shadow... And the Old Testament law is something, but it's nothing compared to our risen Savior. See, here's the problem with legalism, of looking outward, with saying that outward practice is required. It becomes the measure of spirituality. It becomes something that, okay, there's these hoops that we have to jump through in order to show that we're, we're spiritual. Now the question is, who gets to set the hoops? Who has the power in your life? Who's got the authority in your life to say, these are the hoops you have to jump through in order to show your spirituality? It's a dangerous, dangerous situation. Additionally, legalism cannot restrain the flesh, as we heard last week from Pastor Art, who preached about the spirit-filled life. Um, That's how we we restrain the flesh, flesh is through the spirit-filled life. It's not through legalism. It doesn't have that power. And also, legalism is is deceptive, as, as a rebel can act nice for a time, 
right? You can act nice for a time. You think of a person struggling in, in sin, and, and far too often we try to lob onto them all these legalistic rules, do this or that, and, and do all these things, and that way you'll overcome your sin. One commentator says this, Christianity is too free and exuberant to be trained down to times and seasons. Its feast is daily, for every day is holy, its moon never wanes, and its serene tranquility is an unbroken Sabbath. Let me read that again. That's just... We don't write like this anymore, do we? Christianity is too free and exuberant to be trained down to times and seasons. Its feast is daily, for every day is holy. Its moon never wanes, and its serene tranquility is an unbroken Sabbath. I'm not sure we've mastered this yet. Uh, In a lot of ways, I'd argue that we've decreased our focus on worship as a a lifestyle, turning to our, our own wants as our focus, but... Nonetheless, we need reminded that we don't turn to legalism to help us out of our stupor. So how do we combat legalism in our own hearts? What do I really believe about grace? What do I really believe about grace? I was telling someone once about grace versus legalism. legalism. You know what their response was? Well, grace sounds so much better. (laughs) It does, doesn't it? Grace sounds so much better. Unfortunately, though, we find ourselves looking for our actions to complete us before Christ. That's become a very wearying search, can't it? How much do I have to do to be complete? How much more do I have to do to prove myself worthy of Christ? It is a weary search, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Stop looking for things you do to make you acceptable before God. Someone might say, I'm in three Bible studies. I go to Sunday school. I have a discipler. I go to discipleship classes. I have an accountability group. Great. Maybe. (laughs) Are those things the measure of your spiritual life? If I do all these things, then I will be acceptable before God. Maybe drop a few Bible studies and start getting involved in evangelism and compassion. Or maybe since I'm the pastor overseeing those, I'm recruiting right now. But, um, but seriously, don't, don't wear those as a badge of honor that kind of puts you above us low lives that don't go to three Bible studies. It's not a measure of your spirituality. Many of you serve faithfully and attend discipleship opportunities without a hint of legalism. I praise the Lord for that. If that's one extreme is someone who does all these things to try to make themselves acceptable. Maybe there's another extreme of, of license. Let me address those who maybe on the other end of the spectrum who haven't gotten engaged with things. Let me encourage you to get involved, to get serving, not because of legalism, but because of the joy that you'll find in doing so. Not because you'll gain salvation or gain your sanctification legalistically, but as a response to an amazing gospel. Experience the body of Christ. Let me just tell you, as a member of Bethany Community Church, the undescribable, indescribable joy I have found of fellowshipping with these believers, serving alongside these believers, the joy that I have found in being engaged with the local church in so many ways, it is un... You can't describe it. If you're a member of another church, I sincerely hope you're experiencing the same joy there at your church. So legalism cannot add to our salvation 
or your sanctification. And uh, we've been reading through this book. Again, I get no kickback for this, but as a family, we've been reading through C.J. Mahaney's book, Living the Cross-Centered Life. It's kind of an expansion of his book, The Cross-Centered Life. And if you're struggling with any of these things in legalism, I cannot commend this book to you enough, Living the Cross-Centered Life by C.J. Mahaney. So Paul says to stop looking outward. He also says stop looking upward. Verses 18 and 19, our second point for today. Stop looking upward. Now that at first glance, you might think, okay, well, wait a minute, hang on, stop looking upward. What's that mean? Wait for it here. Uh, let, me, let me help you with this. Uh, let me go back and read verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows in, with a growth that is from God. So the word asceticism is mentioned here. I'm not really going to talk about that till our third point. And the reason is asceticism in some translations can mean a humility in relation to false humility. So that's how I'm going to treat the word here. Uh, I, I think the broader focus of these verses, uh, 18 and 19, is, is mysticism. Okay? So when I say stop looking upward, I'm talking about stop looking for these mystical experiences um, that the Colossian church was being taught by some heretical teachers to, to confirm their salvation and their sanctification. Mysticism means to look upward for some kind of subjective religious experience that gives one a deeper spirituality. It's pursued outside of one's five senses and thinking, looking for some kind of internal self-authenticating experience. So it seems that uh, some were telling authentic believers that they would be disqualified should they not experience these mystical things that they had experienced. So what Paul is not saying here, uh, this, this verse can be kind of confusing to some, that he's not saying to an authentic believer that they can be disqualified out of the faith. What he's saying is don't allow these heretical teachers to tell you that you can be disqualified out of the faith. So he's referencing to those that were pursuing mysticism and what they were saying. So they were, these her, heretics were pr- promoting a, a false humil- humility or this asceticism saying that they were closer to God through first worship of angels. Okay. So this is obviously in direct conflict with verses like 1 Timothy 2.5 where there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. Or also, uh, uh, where is it, Matthew 4.10. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And so for quite some time, this worship of angels all throughout this region was promoted all throughout the region in which Colossae was, was located. So worship of angels. Second, visions. That, that you need to have these visions in order to be saved and be sanctified. Some were preaching that. Uh, this is still true today. We had that today, that some attempt to put themselves on a higher plane, emphasizing these visions from the Lord. And so my question to those people is, how does a loving God whose son drank the entire cup of wrath that I deserved not also give me everything I need to walk with him? The answer's in the Bible. His divine power, Kevin mentioned this in his prayer, uh, 2 Peter 1, 3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, long ago... At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. See, I don't need visions. 
See, spiritual growth comes from being connected to Christ. He alone is our vine. These heretical teachers, Paul says, were, were not holding fast to the head as we need to, to grow. Paul says that these folks, with all their visions and, and angelic worship, are not even connected to Christ. Are not even connected to Christ. So John 15, 4 and 5 helps us, right? Abide in me and I in you. As a branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do some things, quite a bit. No, it says apart from me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. So sadly, there are teachers today that say that these they have these visions that tell them to do this or that, or they have these visions that tell their congregations to do this or that. The issue is this. The ground at the foot of the cross is flat. No one has more access to God than another. And there should not be any spiritual smugness in God's church to say that the ground is on a diagonal or tilted or being puffed up, as, as Paul writes here. So if you're one who struggles with that spiritual smugness, I'm, you're singing your worship song here at the start of our service, and you look down and you say, well, at least I'm more spiritual than that person. I'm having a bad week, but I'm better than that person. If there's some spiritual smugness and you remember the gospel, if we think our spiritual maturity is so great, we're forgetting our depravity, aren't we? That we are sinful. If, one, if you're one on the receiving end of spiritual smugness from someone else, remember the gospel. If you think someone is spiritually smug, encourage them and point them towards the gospel that is the divine level setter. If we are all holding fast to the head, if we're all holding fast to Jesus Christ, we're all growing together and being knit together. As I mentioned in communion, I, I can't encourage you enough to do this to its fullest, to, to be a part of a local church, to become a member, to get involved in that church's purpose statement. So Paul told the church to stop looking outward. He told the church to stop looking upward. And thirdly, he told the church to stop looking inward. Verses 20 through 23. Let me read that for us. But if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you still do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to the human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So why do I say stop looking inward. Uh, each person has inward desires. And what are some of those desires that we have? We have desires for food, uh, for financial provision to provide, uh, for acceptance, for love. We can list these off uh, forever, all these inward desires that we have. Well, asceticism, asceticism is the belief that our bodies are evil, so all those inward desires are evil. And so we must try to beat those out of us so we no longer have those desires anymore. So this means that one does not indulge, should, should, should look inward, find those desires, and then try to beat them out of them, even sometimes physically. 
a man during the early church times named Anthony tried to do this by never changing his vest or never washing his feet. I think this was mentioned recently in another sermon, but another man named Simeon spent the last 36 years of his life atop a 50-foot pillar. Can you imagine that? He believed exposing his body to the elements and withdrawing from others was a way to true spirituality. This was his asceticism. I have these inward desires for comfort and for relationship, but since I, this body is evil, uh, I'm going to try to beat those, those out of me. So asceticism, denial of things in one's life, or severe discipline in hopes of reaching a spiritual plane. If you look back at verse 20, it starts with the word if. Uh, it's kind of a conditional statement here. If with Christ you died, meaning really because with Christ you died, or since with Christ you died. Uh, Paul's not trying to get the Colossian church to doubt their salvation, but emphasizing this. Because you died with Christ, why do you still deal with these elementary principles of do not handle, do not taste and do not touch. Again, it could be a reference to these dietary restrictions that one would deny themselves. Uh, I have this desire for food. I'm going to deny myself to find true spirituality. Uh, one commentator believes Paul is, is ridiculing them, and by kind of creating a, a progression here, uh, you say you, you can't handle certain foods. You say you can't taste certain foods. Is there anything you can even touch? Kind of ridiculing uh, the teachers of this asceticism. This is not uh, thoughts of God. These are thoughts of, of man. Verse uh, 23 says that this human thought can have the appearance of wisdom. We think, oh, okay, well, look, look how this, this guy's denying himself this or that. What a, what a godly man. Or look at this woman who's denying herself that simple thing. She is so close to God. Uh, Paul warns that this is self-made religion and a false humility that actually leads to arrogance and pride. And because it is from man, does not help our fleshly desires to stay at bay. I don't know about you, there's times maybe I'm trying to avoid eating sweets to try to, uh, try to live a little healthy, and you go to some party or some big event, and everybody's having a piece of cake, and you don't have one, right? You're, and there's kind of this, this pride, because I'm like, yeah, look at all these lowlifes eating their cake, and I don't need that cake. And this smugness can come uh, from that. I think this is what Paul is warning the church about. There are those that are, that are smug in your church thinking that uh, this asceticism is what's needed for salvation and for sanctification. Don't fall into that, that trap. Well, how does someone end up here? How, how does someone end up believing that asceticism can be added to their salvation or sanctification? Um, let me give an illustration here that I think is true in our culture. Um, and I... I think really I could do this illustration for any one of these points, for legalism, for mysticism, and for asceticism. But I would ask our culture, do you believe in freedom? And I think, I think most in our culture would say, yes, I believe in, in freedom. Well, do you believe there should be unrestrained freedom? We could do everything we want to. I think most in our culture would say, no, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that. We have laws, don't murder, and, and things like that. So they'd say no to that. Well, from where should restraints come? I'd ask the culture. Well, I would guess the culture would answer, well, from majority. Uh, the majority rules in a democratic society. Okay, well, uh, how does the majority express that desire for these restraints? Well, by voting and by electing government officials to put those things in place. So my next question to our culture would be, let's say there is a country that has government officials that were elected by 
a majority, to give restraint uh, to freedom. That said, a, a woman should not be seen in public unless every portion of her body is covered except for a slit for her eyes. That falls into what you've said, correct? Do you believe in freedom? Yes. Restrained freedom? Yes, we should have restraints on freedom, some restraint. How does that happen? Well, by majority, and then how the majority get elected? Well, through gov- voting in uh, government officials. So then you're fine with this country telling that to that woman, right? Well, no, I'm not. Well, how can you not be? It's the same process. What's that evidence of? We need something outside of man-made thought to give us the right perspective on what freedom is. We need something outside of man's wisdom to give the right perspective on what, how freedom should be restrained. That's how we get caught in these asceticism and, and, and mysticism and in these legalistic things. It's a lack of understanding of, of a need for something outside of ourselves. It's a lack of understanding of, of our need for God's grace to help us to understand what those things are. And so we look at our culture and we don't shake our hand and say, you fools, we have compassion. And we say, you need grace. You need God's grace. Let me tell you about the story of the gospel. And then we look at our own hearts too, right? We, we place our faith in Christ and then we sin and we know because of our standing before God that we are forgiven, right? First John 1 John 1.9 says that we, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we pray and say, God, please forgive me. I know I'm forgiven already, but I want a restored relationship with you. Um, this is all good and biblical. But what is sin? Sin is desire gone bad, right? It is those inward desires that aren't necessarily bad, but they go bad. Greed is, is, is something that starts inside of us. It's something that I want to provide. And then that desire becomes a demand, and it becomes sin. Uh, lust. It, it's good for a man to desire a woman to move relationally towards her, to pursue marriage, but not outside the boundaries of, of marriage he set up for us. And so we sin. The sin of lust comes about. The problem is then we don't apply grace correctly to it. So we decide, in, a, a, in practicing our own asceticism today, Okay, I'm never going to spend another dollar frivolously again. Or we struggle with lust. I'm never going to look at another woman again. And we start to kind of punish ourselves. When in reality, we need to first look at the desire and ask ourselves, why did it become a demand? This is idol worship 101, right? You and I begin to worship the desire. It becomes a demand. It becomes an idol. We need to look at our hearts. Hearts. Sure, there are are things we need to get out of our lives immediately when we sin uh, in order to help us to not be tempted and not to worship the desire. Of course, that's true. But at the same time, don't believe the lie that, that punishing yourself is going to bring about holiness. It's going to add to your salvation. There is a right way to live out asceticism. Just on a side note here, you think of, of a missionary who uh, goes to the far reaches of the world to bring the gospel there, and do they have to give up things? Of course they do, right? There's a lot of comforts they might have here in the United States that they wouldn't be able to have there. But they're not doing that in order to add to their salvation or to bring out some spiritual status that's not available to the rest of us, right? They, they do it in humility. And so Paul says, stop looking inward. Don't try to beat holiness into you. He says to stop looking outward and stop trying to legalistically work your way into heaven. And he says, stop looking upward 
Stop looking for some mystical experiences that will validate your salvation. Again, nothing can add to the sufficiency of Christ for our salvation and for our sanctification. So my question to you this morning is, when you look at Christ, do you say you're just too good to be true? Do you think you need to add something to him? Let me read in closing just here a portion of the passage preceding what we studied today. In verse 9 of Colossians 2, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. Verse 13, And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that the gospel would never be boring. As we hear the words of Colossians 2 read here, you canceled our record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This you set aside, nailing it to the cross. May this just come alive in our hearts, Lord. May our affections be aroused as we think about the incredible gospel. Thank you that we don't have to look outward, upward, inward, that we look to you who for the joy set before you, you endured the cross, scorning its shame, and you sat down. You finished things, God, for your glory and on our behalf. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.